Hi, welcome to New Hope Community Church Online. The sermon you are about to hear was originally given by Pastor Chuck Wilson. New Hope Community Church, to know, to live, and to share Jesus Christ. The title for today is The Secret to Living a Great Life. Don't we all want to live a great life? Well, here's the secret. Jesus is giving us a secret to a great life, but it's not what we usually think about. I'll give you a hint. Servanthood. All right, so there you go. Mark 10, 31 to 45. We just had been looking, as we've been going through the book of Mark chapter 10, we saw how the rich young man had given up on Jesus in order to keep his earthly junk, right? But the disciples who had given up everything for Jesus are given a money-back guarantee. And we're all given the same money-back guarantee, 100% return on what we give up for Jesus. And Jesus ends with Mark 10, 31. And I... I'm going to use this as a bridge. It's a bridge between last week and this week. But in Mark chapter 10, verse 31, it says, Jesus said, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is a bridge to a much deeper teaching on servanthood. I remember one of the main ways God taught me about servanthood was something that happened to me in a very powerful way. Not that I always remember it. I wish I could remember this daily because I don't do a very good job with it. But I, I, I really learned a very powerful message for myself on servanthood on a trip to India. I went to India about 20 20 years ago now. I went to India and I went with Gospels for Asia. That's K.P. Yohannan, Revolution and World Mission, a phenomenal book. If you never read it, read it. But the idea behind it is is you can adopt a a missionary church planter in India for a very small amount and they are planting churches. Unbelievable. The ministry they're doing. It just it's just a powerful way to do missions. And I went with them because they would have pastors come and, and teach at their, they don't have seminaries, they had boot camps. They had these boot camps and they would have like a six month boot camp and they'd bring these pastors in and teach from the word. And uh, part of it was to teach us because I think we learned more than they learned, you know, what we saw from these guys, but also a way to connect the ministry with pastors in, in the U.S. and that kind of thing. So anyway, I arrived with this group of pastors and I, I arrived separately and there, there was another group of pastors coming and little did I realize that I was the only one not from their denomination. So I like to see seven other pastors and myself strike one. And then the second thing that happened was they were all from the, the Bible Belt and these mega churches. And here I was from this little church plant in New England, not the Bible Belt. And we we're just trying to survive, you know. And they're like, how many do you have in your church? I go, well, we're still, we're still, the doors are still open. We're still meeting. That's what I was excited about. They were from these mega churches. Their Sunday school classes were probably bigger than my church, right? And as soon as they found out, they kept asking me how many people. And I said, a oh, hundred. <laughs> they were all snickered. Strike two. All right. And then uh, to top it all off, these guys were a bit insensitive. They, they like to tell jokes um, about, well, I'm going to just come out and say it. They would tell a lot of gay jokes. And they would tell jokes about homosexuals, and they would keep telling these jokes and put-downs and just kind of snide things. And I was like, I was really bothered by it. For, so after a couple of days, I finally spoke up. I said, guys, what are you doing? You know, what are we doing here? We're pastors. You know, people who struggle with homosexuality, they don't, with homosexuality, we shouldn't be putting them down and making fun of them. That's, we want to reach out to them and show them the love of Christ and help them find healing. That's, that's not the, the right way to help them. And also, if, if somebody in your church, there's people in your churches that struggle with homosexual temptation. Yes, in your churches, guys. And, and I said, and, and they'll never come and share their struggles with you. 
If you're always making fun of them and putting them down, they won't trust you. And I wouldn't trust you either if I had a struggle. So, so and, and I might as well have been talking a different language. They didn't get it at all. They just, you know, they just, that was, they just like, you know, they, they did not take it well. Let me just put it that way. Strike three. So here I go. I'm, I'm, they now, then they proceeded to marginalize me on this trip. as me and these seven guys. And they start, proceeded to marginalize me. So when we go into to, to minister to the boot camp, they had this podium up front. And all the young men were, I, I call my boys, all the young men were sitting on the floor uh, of the ground there. In India, it's a whole different culture. They don't need the chairs. They're used to that. But the guys on the podium, the, the American pastors, were up there with a couple of the leaders of the, the boot camp seminary. And they had chairs set up. So we all went to go out and sit up, and they all filed in. And I was the last one, and there was no chair for me. And, and I was looking around, and they kind of looked at me like, no chair for you. <laughs> and so I go, okay. So I went and sat down with the boys on the ground. They were so excited. They were like, what is this guy sitting? They never had an American pastor sit on the ground with them before. I thought it was fun. We sat there, and, and, and then they started to, to do the teaching. And uh, so I sat down, and then these guys started taking turns teaching. And then for a couple of days, they would teach, teach, teach. And I was never, I was left out of the loop. They never asked me to teach. And that didn't take me long to figure out, yes, uh, strike one, strike two, strike three. They didn't trust me to teach because I wasn't one of them, you know. So, but um, I was having too much fun with my new friends to care. We were just having a ball, you know, because we'd go from sitting on the ground to walking out. And all these guys would go off with the, the big guys. And I was with my boy, the big men, and I was with my boys. And we were just hanging out. We just had the best time. And they would ask me question after question about spiritual things. And I would ask them a lot of questions because they taught me a lot, let me tell you. Uh, you know, they would like, how much does the average pastor spend in prayer in America? Well, I don't know, 10 minutes a day. They're like, what? what? They were in shock because we, we have to spend two hours a day before we get to our boot camp in the morning. I'm like, keep doing that. I said, keep doing that. And uh, so it was just really eye-opening for them and for me. Uh, but we had, I had a time in my life with these guys. They couldn't believe I was spending time with them because always the American pastors would come and spend time with the big men and not with, with these guys. We became very close, very fast, and, they, and it was just a really, really special time. But these other pastors continued to teach day after day. It was like about five days in a row. They continued to teach, and I continued to sit there in the, in the ground. And they taught a lot of really good things because they were strong Bible teachers. They were Bible-based. They taught a lot of really good things, but they also taught some very questionable things. Not from the Bible, but when they got off of the Bible and they started to try to tell these guys how to grow a big American church. That's what they started to try to teach them. This is how I grew the big American church. And this is what you need to do if you want to get a big building. And they started talking about their buildings and the money and budget. And they're talking about millions of dollars of budget to these guys who, who lived on, you know, $30 a, dollar a day. And that's what they did ministry on. And I was just like, I was horrified they were saying these things. And and they, but they just kept teaching this stuff. And this is the last thing these guys needed to hear, right? Because they were already doing an amazing job growing New Testament churches. They were growing churches like you read about in the Bible. And the last thing they needed to hear about is what we were doing. But I just kept quiet and I prayed. I said, God, I just, I don't know what to do, but I just kept sitting with my friends and praying and building relationships. And then an amazing thing happened. The last day that we're all together, they called us up front, up to the up front to the podium. This time I was allowed to sit up on the podium. They called all the pastors up and they said thank you to us and, and they gave us gifts and thanks us. But they saved me for the last one. They got to me, they gave each of the guys a gift and they were really what we would call trinkets. But when they got to me, they had a special gift. I could tell they're all excited to give it to me. And, and they gave me this carved elephant. And, and 
To us, they might say, well, what's the big deal? This is worth a lot in India. Like, to them, it's worth a lot. They obviously had spent some money, put their money together, and got me this gift. And it meant a lot to me. And they, they, uh, I keep it on my desk, if you've ever been on my shelf, if you've ever been in my office, it's sitting right there, this elephant, to remind me of the lessons I should keep remembering. But the other guys were a little bit put out because they looked at their trinkets. And I, we would, I would have been thrilled with that trinket. We didn't expect anything. But when they saw what they gave me, a couple of guys were like, wow, that's pretty expensive. They must have spent a lot on that. You know, and one, they started to make some snide comments. Like, you should just move here. You'd probably do better in ministry here than you do in America. You know, they started saying, these, you know, real helpful guys, right? Uh, so they were starting to say this stuff, and they, they were a little bit put out there, all except for one guy. One guy took me aside afterward and said, I just want to apologize to you on behalf of our whole group. They're not apologizing, but I am, because we've treated you like dirt. And, and uh, the guys are jealous of you, you know, because you have this great relationship with these guys, and you've had such an impact on these guys because you're not trying to be up on the podium. And, and, he's, and I, he just said, I really want to ask for your forgiveness on behalf of these guys because it's just it's been really great how God is using you in, in spite of being shut out and being treated badly. And that really meant a lot to me that this guy had said that. Then they all had to leave because they had a different travel plan. So I was stuck there, stuck there another day with the boys, my boys. And these guys were all gone, the other seven, and it was just me. And so they came up, and the leaders now weren't influenced by these guys. They came up, would you teach today? We'd like to have you teach. So I'm going to get my chance up on the podium. <laughs> I went up there, and I, and I taught. And I got to teach for the whole, you know, they gave me several. I got to be the only guy there teaching, and I, I was like, oh, God, okay, here we go. So I preached from the Word and from my heart, and, and I said to the, I remember I said to the young man, you have been taught some really good things this week. Anything that you heard from God's Word is awesome. Keep it, learn it, live it, super. But anything that you heard that wasn't from God's Word, forget it. <laughs> forget it. Because you have been taught some things that you should forget, which is how to be like an American church. I said, guys, that's the last thing you should do. We should be sending people here to learn from you because they're doing this amazing ministry in India. These, these church planters that are living on a shoestring. I said, we should be coming and learning from you. You shouldn't be learning from us. Forget anything they said about becoming like an American church. Keep doing exactly what you're doing because you're a real New Testament church. And they were just so moved. They were shocked that I said this, but they were so moved. And I, I, I think really affirmed that, that keep doing what they were doing. It was a very powerful time for them and for me. Now, I could have stood up for myself right at the beginning, but by sitting down, I was in a place where God could use me. I wish I could always say that it's a case. I think it's about 50-50 for me. The flesh is hard to fight, isn't it? It's a 50-50, and sometimes I'm on the other seven guy's side. I'm in I'm on the dark side sometimes, and I know it. And, and it's, it's a battle with our flesh to be a servant, isn't it? It's really, really tough. But we're going to see that Jesus teaches this very thing here in Mark chapter 10. And let me pray before I start reading this. Father, we thank you for the worship today. We thank you for bringing each one of us here. We know we're here for a reason. We just ask that your spirit would speak to us, that our flesh could get out of the way, and, and we could hear through your mercy and grace your word from your son Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. 
Okay, so let's pick it up with verses 32 to 34 where Jesus predicts his death. They were on their way to Jerusalem while Jesus was leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and he will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So we see Jesus' third prediction. It's the third time he's told them what's going to happen, but they're still astonished. They're really shocked and afraid. Why? Well, he had already told them what was going to happen, but he hadn't told them where it was going to happen. And where is this going to happen? Jerusalem. And where are they headed? Jerusalem. So they're shocked. Why are you going there? And they're also scared of what's going on. And also he went into a lot more detail, full details. The religious leaders plus the Gentiles are going to work together. The Pharisees, the Romans together are going to mock, spit, flog, and kill him. And then he's going to resurrect from the dead. But they still don't get it. In fact, they won't get it until after the resurrection. Why aren't they getting it? Because their focus is on themselves. That's what their whole focus is on. Does that sound familiar to any of us? <laughs> we don't get something God's trying to teach us because our whole focus is on ourselves. And their whole focus is on itself. And really, they're even thinking about, here's Jesus having this emotional moment, I'm going to die. And they're thinking, what's in it for me? Look what they say here in verses 35. We'll pick it up in 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So... Jesus just says, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die, and, and, and they are like already fighting a crazy request. Jesus was a patient man. Do you need proof that he's divine, that Jesus was really the Son of God divine? This is the proof. Look how he handled these dodos, and what, look what he put up with, with that man with us, right? The first prediction he made, remember we talked about the first prediction? He f- predicts his death, and Peter comes up and starts to argue with him and try to talk him out of dying on the cross, which was his whole purpose. The second time we talked about the second prediction, remember that? The, after the second prediction, the disciples break into an argument about who's the greatest. The third time, now here we have the third time, two of his key three are jockeying for positions, the top two positions when he's dead and gone. Uh, they finally beat Peter out. They got to beat that Peter guy out, right? Beat out Pete. Uh, it's crazy, but isn't that human nature? How many times do we see when a parent is, is dying in the hospital, on their deathbed, and, and the kids are already out in the hall fighting over the stuff? Or as soon as they die, they fight over the will, and they fight over everything, and, and kids never talk to each other again. You know, it happens a lot. We all can relate to that, can't we? Or the USA church. I talked about the U.S. church, how infected we are. What, what is the U.S.? What, how do people... What's the best word to describe the U.S. church and people of the U.S.? Consumerism. Consumerism. It's a consumer mentality. What can I get? How do we go to church? What can I get instead of what can I give? Right? That's the American church. 
And it wasn't just these guys' fault. Their mother was actually in on it, put them up to it. Let's look at Matthew 20. I'll just put it up here for you. In Matthew 20, verse 20, then the mother, the parallel passage, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. So it was all three of them. We could see all three of them together were working together. There were helicopter parents even then, a helicopter mom even then, trying to get her kids in front of the line, right? Get her kids at the, the front. And they asked to sit at the right and the left. Now, it was... It wasn't exactly a crazy request because they were already promised that they could sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 thrones of Israel. Backing up to Matthew 19, verse 28. Let me read this to you. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So they have already been promised that they're going to sit... 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Why wasn't this mentioned in Mark? Why did Matthew mention it but not Mark? Well, who did Matthew write to? The Jews. Who's Mark writing to? Gentiles in Rome. It wouldn't mean anything to them. Ooh, who are the 12 tribes and what, who are you talking about? That doesn't mean anything to the, to the people in Rome. But Mark's writing to the ones in Rome. But they were promised that they were the 12 apostles are going to sit on the 12 thrones judging the nation of Israel and in, in the glorious kingdom that's coming. But that's not enough for James and John or their mother. They want the two top spots. They want the spots of power. But look at what Jesus is back in Mark 10, 38. Jesus says to them, You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Can you drink the cup and share my baptism? Drinking the cup is a, a Jewish expression, means to share the fate of. If you drink the same cup, you're sharing the fate with that person. And the cup was also, in the Old Testament, also a common metaphor for God's wrath against sin and rebellion. The cup of God's wrath, it was a, a metaphor for, for his wrath against sin and rebellion. Jesus came to drink that cup. He came to take his wrath, God's wrath, his Father's wrath, on himself on the cross. He came to take our sin and the punishment for us on himself on the cross. He died for our sin. That's why in Mark, which we're going to see in a little while, Mark 14, we're going to see this in a, probably in a few months actually, Mark 14, 36, when Jesus said he's in the garden, he's sweating blood, and he says, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. His flesh was fighting against dying on that cross. The human flesh was, knew the, brutal, the brutality he was facing. And yet he submitted to God and said, I will take that cup. The cup of your wrath. The punishment for our sins. Baptism was also an image of suffering. Not just the cup, but baptism was also an image of suffering in the, in the Bible. And it's a picture here of the suffering he would undergo for our sin. That's why baptism is so important. In Romans 6, 3-4, to it talks about baptism. And we're going to be having a baptism soon. In Romans 6, 3-4, it says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ... Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 
That's a picture of what Jesus Christ has. Baptism is a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us. He died for our sins and he came, he came alive to give us new life. When Jesus went down into the grave, he took our sin with him. When he came out, he, he gave us a chance at a brand new life when he resurrected. That's why we go under the water. Sprinkling this baby, that's a dedication. This is a whole Bible teaches believe and be baptized. And it's always immersion, always under the water because that's the picture of what Jesus Christ did on, in, in the grave. We go under the water to show that we have died to our old self. We come back out alive to show that we have arisen with Jesus Christ. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, when you say, God, I believe Jesus died for my sin. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you, I put my faith in Jesus. I give my life to him. When the moment you do that, you die. Your old self dies and you become a brand new person in Jesus Christ. And baptism is a picture. It's a public witness of what has happened. That's why it's commanded. It's very, it's a beautiful, awesome. You saw the video early. Awesome experience. It's a powerful experience. But it's commanded because it's a picture of what has happened inside of us. A public witness that we, our old self has died and we have a new life in Jesus Christ. If you've never been baptized as a believer, I want to encourage you. We're going to have the baptism coming up the 16th, 10 a.m. Talk to me ASAP. It's awesome, awesome. Then Jesus asked James and John, can you do it? Can you drink the cup? Can you be baptized? And look what they see in verse 39. These humble guys here, just like us. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. So they say, he says, can you do it? And they say, we can. In Greek, it's one word. Yep, definitely. No problem. Oh, no, that's two words. Yeah. Right? So no problem. Jesus says, you will. Now, first we know they ran away, didn't they? First they ran away and hid, but then they did drink the cup. James was the first apostle to be martyred. Not the first one. The first one was... Stephen, right? But the first apostle to be martyred was James in Acts chapter 12. He was killed with a sword. John, in the book of Acts, you saw that he was, he's been threatened many times with death. He was, he was beaten and all kinds of things, but they couldn't kill him. And finally, we know from tradition that he was boiled in oil but didn't die. Couldn't kill the guy. God had a plan for him still. So they, they exiled him to the island of Patmos, which was where the mines were. And he, as an old, old man, had to work in these brutal mines. And that's probably what finally killed him. He was, just went through an incredible torture. But that's where he received the book of Revelation, the vision of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. We can't be killed until God's purpose is fulfilled for our life. So Jesus says, you will. You will do this. But he says in verse 40, look what he says in verse 40. He says, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. He said, it's not my decision. It's my father's call. He's going to decide who sits where next to me. But James and John set off a chain reaction. Something bad happens. They, they poison the group. Look what happens in verse 41. We'll start reading. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
The other ten find out what the two had asked, and they get mad. And they're probably mad they didn't think of it first, right? They didn't beat them to the punch. Peter was probably the most mad. This me-first attitude, the me-first attitude spreads like poison among the twelve apostles. We see that so many times, don't we? Think of, your, think of families and how one person can cause so much division. Or, or work at your workplace. One person can poison and start the bad poisoning process. Or a team, you're on a sports team and someone can, you've seen, probably all experienced what one person can do. Churches, same. Churches are not exempt. Churches are probably one of the worst. Churches, so many churches get poisoned by, by the divisiveness and negativity. I, for four years, um, before I started this church, for four years, I traveled and did a renewal ministry, evangelistic ministry, revival ministry, and I, I was in a lot of churches in those four years. And I, I spent a lot of church trying, trying to help churches really wake up or, or many times turn around. They were in, in crisis. They were hurting. And the biggest roadblock to churches waking up or, or waking, recovering or moving forward was division, church splits. And they would start this divisive process, and it was like a nosedive, just like a plane doing a nosedive or that downward spiral. Once it starts, it's very, very hard to pull out of that nosedive. It's very hard to stop that downward spiral that, was ha- that happens. Just like with a plane, it's hard to turn a church around. And most of the time, it didn't. Most of the time, the churches would die. And the thing was, they were fighting about the dumbest things. Dumb, dumb things. It wasn't about salvation by faith or works, which was something you should argue, you know, that's important, or something really important. It was about, it was about dumb things. Unbelievable, really. And you know what the most common divisive topic was? Worship. <laughs> Worship styles. That was the number one problem we ran into all the time. Worship styles. And the problem wasn't that people like different types of worship, but they would spiritualize their, the kind they like. Well, the hymns are more holy because they're older, and oh, that's, they're just more holy. God speaks through them. And other people are like, no, you need contemporary music, modern music, because you've got to reach the new people. And if you reach, sing those old hymns, you're not, you don't care about the lost. You know? and, and they had this battle going on, and churches would fight. Now, what is worship supposed to be about? God. We're focusing on God. It's not for us. But here they're fighting, making it about them and spiritualizing their position, you know, spiritualizing it somehow, making that the spiritual, biblical position when they were both wrong, but both right. Worship's about God. It doesn't matter how you worship. We do our best here, you know, to, to have different styles. I don't know if you notice. If you get her on time and you stay till the end, you'll probably see many different styles of worship. We have hymns. We have the courses. We have the most modern stuff. We try to give everybody a chance to enter in. But the, the key is this. I don't care what we use. It doesn't matter to me. I just listen to the words. If I can't sing it because I didn't grow up with it or, or whatever, or I didn't hear it on the radio, I just listen to the words. I just shut my eyes and I listen because I can worship with any style because the words are so worshipful. And plus, my singing messes it up anyway most of the time. It's just better if I do listen, right? So, but, but, it, but the, uh, churches are splitting over worship. Isn't that crazy? But that's what happens in churches. That it, one person and one wrong attitude can start to poison it. And, and, and we, just like the apostles, the, the poison creeps in. And it doesn't have, there's a lot of things we can fight about, right? Churches fight about a lot of things. And, and, but look what Jesus says in verses 42 to 43. He says... 
Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. He says, Don't be like the Gentiles. Now, once again, who is Paul? Uh, I'm sorry, who is Mark? <laughs> sorry, who is Mark writing to? Gentiles. He says, So he's rubbing this in, right? But also, they're going to know exactly what he's talking about. Because these are Roman Gentiles living in Rome. They're going to know exactly what he's talking about. In fact, I was just reading, I'm reading a book right now called Gathering of the Clouds. And it, in it, it's, I like, love to read history. In it, they started talking about what happened with the different emperors and the fighting and what, what, what it was like in Rome. You think our political process is bad right now? Listen to this. In the three centuries which had elapsed between Julius Caesar and Constantine, there had been 62 emperors, so that their average reigns had scarcely exceeded five years. Of these 62, no less than 47 had died violent deaths. 42 had been murdered, three had committed suicide, one had perished in a rebellion, two had abdicated, one had been drowned, and one had mysteriously disappeared. Eleven only of the entire number had died in the ordinary course of nature, nor had the state of things been much better in the 87 years which had elapsed since the death of the first Christian emperor, Constantine. Constantine, indeed, had died in his bed, but not until he had murdered his own eldest son, Crispus. Of Constantine's three sons, Constantinus inaugurated his reign by a massacre of the seed royal. Constantine II perished in attempting to invade the realm of his brother Constant. Constance was murdered by his own soldiers. Gallus was beheaded by Constantinus. Constantinus died while hurrying to suppress the revolt of Julian. These are all related. Julian at 37 fell, perhaps by the arrow of one of his own soldiers. Jovian at 32 was suffocated. Valentine Tinian I died in a burst of fury at an imaginary insult. His brother Valens was burnt to death in the terrific rout at Adrianople. Both his sons were murdered, Gratian at 24, Valentins II at 20. Of his successors, two only in the entire century had died by natural and untroubled deaths. Hmm. So when he writes to... When Mark is writing to the, the Gentiles in Rome, they know exactly what he's talking about. They connected the dots very, very easily because they had seen the greed and, and lust for power and the, uh, the, the taking on the purple was like a death sentence. It was like shark week. As soon as they saw a weakness or a little bit of blood, there was a frenzy. And Jesus says, these guys, these sharks, they lord it over them. Look at the word he uses, lord it over them. But our Lord... Our Lord has set us a different example. Servanthood. Servanthood. I'm just going to read it to you again. 40, 44. Instead, 40, 43. And not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Servanthood. If we want to be used in a great way, if we want to live a great life, be a servant. Be a servant. When God knows that we will put other people first, he knows it will be safe to put us first, to put us in a position of leadership. What's worse, when, when someone has got not a servant and they're in leadership, look what happens. <laughs> look what happens. We all could connect dots to our country, right? And, and that's, that's, 
if we want to be safe, we have to put others first. Then God knows it's safe to put us. I'll give you an example. I'm going to give you a story of two of my kids. Which, I'm not going to tell you their names, but which of these two different girls would you want in charge of your kids? Which one do you think I would want babysitting my kids? Which one do you think I usually leave in charge of the kids, right? The first one, we were watching a show a while ago, and she saw, we were watching a show, and we were watching sharks hunting seals. And they hate it when I watch these shows, but I'm fascinated by it. But anyway, the, uh, the, the little ones start to cry. But anyway, they were watching us, and, and the shark is attacking a baby seal, going to kill it. And, and this one daughter of mine says, where's the mother? Where's the mother? She goes, if I was the mother, I would sacrifice myself so that that baby seal could live. And, and I, I thought that was really nice, really cute. And uh, now the other one, the other daughter recently at the beach, we are at the beach last week, and we started talking about shark attacks. <laughs> okay, we're, we're focused on sharks at our house, I admit it. But we also are at Long Beach Island, Beach Haven, that's where the initial jaws happen, the real jaws attack happened, that's where it happened. So it always comes up. And whenever there's like a porpoise, dolphin, whatever those big fish are out, Mammals, what are, I don't mean to offend anybody, but, but whatever they are, these sea creatures out there, dolphins, porpoises, they, when they're out there, when they see them, the first thing you think is, you see that fin, you think, it's a shark. You get scared, right? And, and this daughter was saying, whenever I see them, my first instinct is, you know, and they were all saying, what do we do and how do you get away? She goes, it's no problem. My first instinct, I just push the person closest to me toward that. And... <laughs> Because they'll get that first, that person first. So I'm not really scared to be out there swimming. I just stay by someone and make sure I push them toward it. And like, yeah, I know you pushed me that time. I start talking about it, you know. And, and, I, and I said, oh, that's really nice. What if you're holding your little sibling, you know, a little brother, little sister? What would you? Ooh, I don't know what I would do. My first instinct would be to throw them, you know. But I don't, I don't know what I would do. Now, let me ask you a question. Who do you think I would rather have babysitting my children? Who do you think I want to put in charge of our kids when I'm out? I'm not going to say any names, but they know who they are. <laughs> Jesus says, put others first. Be servants. Fight for the lowest position. He says, that's what I'm doing. Look at verse 45. That's what I'm doing. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what I'm doing. He... He is not only a servant, not only that, but he even gave his own life as a ransom. The word ransom here is a Greek word, and it means the price paid to redeem a slave, to buy somebody out of slavery. That's what the word means. Think of what's going on with ISIS right now. They're taking all these Christians, slaves, and abusing them. But after abusing them, they often will sell them. If you can raise the money, they really want to make money on their... You can pay a certain amount of money and buy them back. And a lot of organizations are trying to do that to, to save these, these poor people. But the, the, the price that Jesus paid for our ransom wasn't monetary. It was his own life. His own life. In fact, in 1 Peter 1, 18-19, it says... For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed. You were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. We were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross for us. That was our ransom payment. On the cross, Jesus paid for our sin. He set us free from slavery to sin, to Satan, to death. To the world's power, he set us free from that. Have you been set free? 
Do you know for sure? The Bible says we can know we have eternal life. Do you know for sure you have been set free? There is only one way. It's by putting our faith in what Jesus has done for us. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The word there for believe doesn't mean just know something in the head. In the Greek, it means to put your faith and your trust in, to cling to, to completely trust in. And that's what each one of us must do at some point in our life, to to be set free from sin, to, to be given life. There's only one way through Jesus Christ to say, God, I believe your son Jesus died for my sin. I repent of that sin. I turn away from that life of sin, and I put my faith in Jesus, my trust in what Jesus did on the cross for me, and I give you my life. My life for your son's life. It's a trade. We accept that ransom. Have you ever done that? Maybe here today, and you've done that, but are we living for Jesus Christ? Are we living a life of servanthood? Are we serving? Do you want to accomplish great things for God? Be a servant like Jesus Christ. Because if we're a servant, then we don't care who gets credit. We don't care who gets credit at work. We don't care who gets credit on the team we're playing. We don't care who gets credit at school. We don't care who gets credit in the church, who gets credit for giving something, because we don't care. We don't care who knows. We're willing to work behind the scenes. We don't care because we're doing it for God. And we have a need for behind the scenes. Setting up. Brad just talked to me this week, and they need help with setting up. It's a thankless job. Nobody ever sees it. Nobody's even here. It's just you and a couple people and God. But we really need some help. And it could be once a month. You could just come in here once a month and help set up to set the, the, the auditorium so that we can have the worship. If you can, there's Brad. Wave, Brad. See Brad. See me. See Kim. See one of us. And we'll get you lined up because we really need some setup. Just could be men, could be women, could be anybody, teenagers. We need some help with setting up. Breaking down's been good. We've got a lot of people here breaking down, but it's really the setup that's the need. But, but there's a lot of ways. Are we looking for ways that we can serve? Ways that nobody else is doing, those, those thankless ways. Or do we have a worldly mindset, or do we have a Christ-like attitude? Are we safe to be used by God? Worldly mindset, Christ-like attitude, is it safe for God to use us? Here's the test. What do we get upset about? I was so convicted doing this. <laughs> what do we get upset about? What, do, what really makes us mad? Because whatever really upsets us exposes what's in our heart. Is there something that we're not getting recognition or our kids or something not getting recognition? And I, it gets, it's just the flesh and it gets so mad. And we're justified a lot of times. But that's not the point. The point is it exposes what's in our heart. And we've got to pray through that, work through that. What is true greatness? To be used by God without getting credit from anybody. To do something for God and to be used by God without anybody even knowing it. Don't give away your rewards in heaven. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Don't worry about that. If it happens, it happens, but that shouldn't be be our focus. How are we doing with servanthood? I want to say something to the men. I'm going to ask Kim to come up here uh, because she's going to help me out with this. But I want to say something to men. Men, are we serving our families? Are we serving our wives? Kim and I were talking about, my wife Kim, we've been talking about this recently. And, and she was saying some of the you know, ladies were feeling like 
some of their needs weren't being met. I said, I think you should say it, because I could say it, but I think it would be a lot more coming from a woman. She says, I'm not going to do it. I go, well, I'm asking you to do it. She goes, I don't have to. I go, that's not a servant, is it? And so, so now, because she hates... Because she hates to talk in front. She hates this. But I, I said, if you're a servant, you'll do it. So, so I had her over the, over, you know, over the cliff there. So she's going to do it for me. Uh, so. Under duress. Well, this isn't just for men. This is for everybody. <laughs> um, we were talking about servanthood and how it really starts in our homes. And um, as I pray about it, my verse for servanthood is Philippians 2, 5 to 8. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And when you think of that verse and what he did for us, it should make it easy for us to serve others. So I started with servanthood, and I said, the first thing you have to do is make a choice. You have to make a choice. Am I going to serve? Am I willing to put the energy out to benefit other people? Not to benefit me, but to benefit others. And the second thing is, after you make the choice to do it, it's our attitude behind it. Is our attitude like Christ Jesus' attitude? He gave himself up for all of us. He was perfect. Do we have that same attitude of humbleness and wanting to serve? And then the third thing is, how do we serve? Do we serve effectively? I know I don't serve effectively. What I do for other people is what I would like done for me. And it kind of comes back to the book, The Five Love Languages. And I know a lot of people know this book. He says, everybody has a love language. Something that shows us that our husband, our wife, our kids, our parent, parents to kids, show them that they love them. There are five different ones. The first one is words of affirmation. And obviously we all know what words of affirmation are. Some people need that to feel like they've been loved or touched. The second one is quality time. Some people need, like from their husband or wife or their children, need quality time. They need to know that they have your undivided attention. That there's nothing else out there that's going to distract you from them. And that means listening to what they're saying and having a quality conversation with them. Some is gifts. Some people's love language is gifts. And that doesn't mean it has to be an expensive gift. That just means that you're thinking about them, you're doing something for them, and you give them a gift that day, whatever the gift is. Some people's love language is service. That's my love language, service. And so what I do for others, I tend to do things for people, service, because that's my love language, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's my kid's love language or that's my husband's love language. And the fifth one is physical touch. It could be hugs, could be just holding hands or anything. But I think a lot of times servanthood in the family has to start with understanding what each of our family members' uh, love languages are so that they feel like you're serving them. You may be doing whatever. You may be thinking that you're serving them, and in reality, they don't even realize that you are because it's not what their love language is. And I think I know, I know at times um, families get frustrated with each other, husbands with wives, kids with parents, parents with kids, and the, all, the root of the issue is that they're not feeling loved, and it's understanding what everybody's love languages are. 
And a good way to figure it out, you can get the book, The Five Love Languages, if you want. You can read it. Or ask each other. Start with the basics. What do you like? What would you like me to do? How do I show you that I care about you, that I love you, that I want, that I want to serve you? And for all of us, it's hard because usually our love languages don't match. So what comes naturally to you that you would like to do for somebody else isn't what means anything to them. So it takes work. It takes having an attitude and making the choice to do it and asking God to help you to do it. And whether that's giving yourself reminders, whatever that is, but to really apply, apply being a servant in your home. And... Um, it's a choice. Really, at the end of the day, it's a choice. And having the right attitude behind it. So I'm speaking to myself as much as everybody else, but that's what God laid in my heart. So thank you. So um, she was real nice about that, but man, we need to do that. Focus on, let's focus on our lives and really, really do that, okay? So, for, for, uh, before I pray, a take-home. Give yourself a reminder, some way to remind. I have my elephant here, and that's a reminder to me about servanthood. And right next to it is my puffer fish. If you're in my office, I have that giant puffer fish, just a big head, you know, and a uh, puffer fish. And that's also a reminder. There's some sin reminders for that because of puffer fish. You've heard me use that before. But also, it's a reminder about pride, too, because... Uh, like I heard someone say one time, and I don't remember who it was, but they said, man is the only animal on the planet where if you pat him on the back, his head swells up. And, and that's true. That's, that's, it's so easy to become proud and self-focused and, and to, to forget about my elephant <laughs> and the servanthood there. But something that will remind you, that just keeps reminding you to, to serve and to, to love your wives sacrificially and families sacrificially and, and other people and just some, some reminder for us to, to keep that humble spirit that God, that will be a battle for the rest of our life. Let's pray. How is God speaking to us in this time of prayer? Maybe it's servanthood. God is calling us to serve somebody or serve in some situation that goes against everything that we want to do. Maybe we need to pray about and, and wrestle through some wrong attitudes and just trust God to be sovereign, that he's going to work things out. And it doesn't matter if we never get credit that, that we're doing it for him, whatever it is. Maybe you're here today and you've never been set free. You can't be a slave of Jesus Christ yet because you're still a slave of the world and to sin and to Satan and to death. But you know today the way to, to life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You can have that life right now. You can be set free from slavery to sin and death right now 
It doesn't take a religious person to help you. It doesn't take a ritual or a religious rite. It's simply putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Right where you're sitting, you can pray from your heart right to God. Just ask forgiveness. God, forgive me for every sin I've ever committed or ever will commit. I I ask you to forgive me. I repent. I don't want that anymore. I turn away from that old life. Forgive me. Because I'm putting my faith in your son Jesus. I'm putting my trust in him. I believe in him. Forgive me because I'm putting my faith in what Jesus did for me on that cross. And I'm going to follow him. I give you my life, God. If you've prayed that prayer this morning, you have just been set free. The Holy Spirit is in you. He's going to work in a powerful way that is going to shock you. You're going to see things in a whole different way. You're going to be convicted of all different things. You're going to, you're going to experience lo- God's love and his blessing and his joy in a way you never thought possible because you've been set free. You're no longer a slave. You're now a child of God. And I want to encourage you to let somebody know you've prayed that prayer and and made that commitment to God because we're going to be excited, but also we can help you grow in your new life in Christ. Maybe you came with a family member or friend or tell me on the way out or fill out the card or text, call, email, anything. Let somebody know so we can encourage you in your new faith, your new life of freedom in Christ. Father, I pray for every one of us that we would live free in Christ. I pray you would help us in this battle between the flesh and serving, Lord. We know it takes the Holy Spirit's help every day, every minute, every second to do this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.